You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Axel Carrera. Axel is currently an assistant professor of philosophy and African-American studies at Wesleyan University. In the fall, she would join the Department of Philosophy at Emory University, where she would be an assistant professor. She specializes in critical philosophy of race, contemporary critical theories, and the environmental humanities. In this episode, we talk about anti-colonial thought, Franz Fanon on liberation, the limits of existentialism, and so much more. Hello, Axel, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How are you, Maisha? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So how did you get interested in philosophy? Oh, wow. Um, That's a quite long story. And here's the thing. I've known you for quite a while. I don't even know what your answer is going to be. I have no idea how, how you got interested in philosophy. So I'm all, I'm really all ears. <laughs> it's a, it's a non-story actually. Um, <laughs> okay. I started my undergraduate studies quite late. Well, late. I was older than your typical 18 year old student. And I wanted to be a psychologist uh, for very, for those who know me, for very obvious biographical reasons. Um, I, I, I thought that that's, that's what I've given my life trajectory. That's what I want it to be. And, and, and very quickly, I was quite um, disappointed by, by the, uh, the training in psychology. And more specifically, I was kind of disappointed by the kind of like biological and uh, very cognitive paradigm at the time and still, I mean, I think that's still the case right now. So, um, yeah, um, you know, I had this notion, uh, that, you know, I was going to read Freud and I was going to read Lacan. I was going to read tons of psychoanalysis and et cetera. So it was nothing that, uh, I found, I, I mean, I didn't find that in psychology at all, you know, um, Instead, I realized quickly that one of the driving assumptions in, in psychology, for instance, was that the human mind or human behavior in general was measurable, calculable, predictable, etc. And all of that didn't really sit well to me, uh, well with me. So I, I had also, you know, having done my, you know, going to high school. Outside of North America, many of us, you know, kind of read philosophy in high school. So I also took philosophy classes in the meantime, mostly because I thought that this that that's what people do in college. <laughs> so and then, you know, gradually I gravitated to philosophy in that way. But uh, doing a PhD in philosophy to me was never really on the in the cards. So what, how, did, how did you make that transition? So were you, were you a philosophy major in college or were you just taking classes? I was, I was a double major in psychology and philosophy. And okay. I stick okay. with psychology, I stuck with psych- psychology because I had done so much already. I had gone through, we had like a really 
difficult requirements kind of like trajectory for the for the um how do you call that the major so I was like you know I've done I've taken enough classes why not just major in it and then I realized that I was taking more philosophy classes so I was like okay like let's double major in it <laughs> so that's kind of like what happened so how, how did how did grad school happen oh grad school it was a complete fluke actually I I mean just to tell you how much philosophy, uh, a PhD in philosophy was not in the cards for me is because I, I even wrote a hundred and plus pages uh, thesis in psychology on the history of psychology, in the history of psychology, but mostly more particularly on the history of race and racism in psychology. So I, I was thinking about grad school, but I was thinking about kind of like a idea theory, a program which at the time my alma mater had, still has. Uh, I was thinking about that. And also I was thinking just also continuing working with my advisor who is quite well known um, in in the history of psychology. So then there's this like really young professor that arrived in the philosophy department at York. I went to York University in Canada, in Toronto. And her name was Alice McLaughlin. Alice was teaching a a course on forgiveness and retribution. And the course, obviously, like if for also, you know me, uh, I think a number of people know me, you know, I'm from Rwanda. I was born in Rwanda and I also was there at the wrong time um, in history. <laughs> and so for many, for those reasons, the course actually from, um, rang not only kind of like a conceptual bell, but also very like psychological, psychical, emotional bells. <laughs> and uh, so I really, I, I took the course, which was a, like, um, was like a, a seminar for seniors, like a senior seminar. And I think for some reason that that course really changed my uh, entire vision for my future. One of the things I, I that is that's just just ringing uh, for me is you know Alice McLachlan is one of my favorite people. I, I go to her work again, given that I do work on anger and, and forgiveness. I go to her work a lot. She was on my my dissertation committee, and so the love and respect that I have for her is just tremendous. And the fact that she was was like so important to you means so much to me. Uh, I think another thing that I kind of take away from this is that uh, although you were introduced to Derrida. It was an analytic class yeah. <laughs> that put you on, yeah. <laughs> put you yeah. on to put you onto philosophy in this way. And so in some ways, my chest is just like beaming yeah. um, with pride. Although we talk about that kind of, we talk about that divide a lot. There, there's, a, there's a tradition of, of Black philosophers, particularly, I mean, you talk about what was the, the first kind of Black book that you read and you referenced Charles Mills. But I think when I had entered philosophy, I think the first thing that I probably read was something by Lewis Gordon, for example. And there's a tradition of Black philosophers who have made use of existentialism. Lewis Gordon has done so. And he used it to explain the Black condition and also, some might say, and others like him, to imagine future possibilities. Mm-hmm. However, you, you note in your work that you had given up on, um, on existentialism. Mm-hmm. And this, this is, these are your words exactly. Yeah. You write, quote, more specifically, I had become suspicious of John Paul Sartre's monopoly 
um, francophone intercolonial thought, end quote. So I want you to tell us a little bit about what is behind this, this giving up of sorts. Mm-hmm. And also, what is, what is behind the suspicion? Can you explain the suspicion a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, thank you for that question. <laughs> um, I feel like I, I, you're only asking questions that are, I'm going to give you the history of my life. And, you know, an exercise in autobiographical uh, writing. Um, well, um, at least it's not biology. But no, I, I wonder, I wonder, yeah. it just seems to be in contrast. I wonder what is, mm-hmm. why give up on existentialism being that it has been a good kind of source I mean, I, for a lot of black philosophers. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I have to tell you that one of the reasons that I also went to, uh, I mean, before I read Derrida, I only read, I mean, I was absolutely into existentialism. You know, uh, there were two courses when I was an undergraduate and uh, that were offered and I took them both, you know, and I wanted to take them again. And in fact, when, uh, you know, uh, just to go back, just a quick thing about Alice, you know, when I returned to Pixie, I still didn't know that I was going to to go to grad school in philosophy. But then um, Alice again said to me, have you seen that? so-and-so, Robert Brunsconi and so-and-so and Catherine Gines are all moving to Penn State. I was like, oh my God. Anyways, those, these are names are now, I knew who they are, who they were finally. But anyways, you know, until that time, you know, I thought that that, that was what was taking me to graduate were, school was existentialism. I wanted to study existentialism and phenomenology seriously. And I knew that, you know, Robert Bernasconi was there and I knew his kind of affinity with existentialism, particularly the relationship between uh, race and or the question of race in the work of, 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 of Fanon and its relationship to, to Jean-Paul Sartre. What is this kind of like the, the, the intimate, uh, somewhat intimate relationship between Fanon existentialism was something that he had written on before. Uh, so I have to say that that was my point of departure, right? So I began where everybody, I think many Black philosophers working in the continental tradition began. I think many of us and still uh, are working in phenomenology and existentialism to a certain extent. So there was something about the ability, or at least the ability to give an account of, the, of lived experience that I found attractive at the time, mostly because I was more interested in finding tools to name that experience, to make it visible. Not only, you know, my aspiration were, were I think, you know, I, I, I not call them very pious aspiration, but I wanted to make to make Black experience, so the experience of racialized subjectivity, something legible, visible, etc. And I thought that that was actually possible. And I also thought, and there are many other tropes in existentialism that I found quite attractive. For instance, this notion of freedom, you know, the fact that freedom is kind of like part is is a is a foundational aspect of uh, of of being human right so that you know there's always the possibility of transcending the condition you know uh, of experience 
is always there, right? It's really what makes you a human being. And I thought about the long history of overcoming so much atrocities and obstacles and, and tragedies that Black people globally had gone through. You know, I almost felt like there was something about existentialism that could allow me to give an account of these ver- various histories of triumphs and victories, et cetera. So in that sense, I was really attracted to existentialism and to what ex- existentialism made possible philosophically, you know. But... But why give it up? <laughs> yes. yes. So this, this is where I, I begin. So we're, we're, we're in 2009, 2011, 12, and I... Something doesn't really sit well with the ways in which I am reading, you know, global politics, the condition of the black globally, you know, continuous rise of state violence, not only within Western nations, but also in our own nations, right? Um, the continuous and unrelenting victimization of black folks globally. I just thought to myself, this business about freedom, et cetera, it just doesn't sit well with any Black person, you know, really committed to giving. I was still committed to give an account of that experience, but I thought that the framework of freedom and agency, you know, it's kind of like robust and absolute notion of subjectivity and agency that I was getting out of, out of uh, existentialism which is, and phenomenology was just not doing the work that I was hoping it would do. You know, I thought it was falling flat. It couldn't tell me why, for instance, Black people were continuously being, you know, um, gratuitously killed at every corner of every street in the world. And when I say in the world, I really meant it in the most literal sense. I'm thinking about the state brutality against various folks in various post-colonial countries in Africa. I mean, I am, uh, indeed, I mean, after all, I am a kind of like a product of that, of that history. And an, an unrelenting one, right, where we are continually killing ourselves, we're con- con- continuously, you know, kind of like betraying ourselves. And there's this kind of like really vulgar notion of power and governmentality that is like is it has taken over the entire continent. You know the all the promises of uh, post independence or the the promises of the anti colonial movement and decolonization have completely fallen flat. People are trying to make their way out of a continent which is technically free. You know it's no longer colonized, but our are really using some of the most tragic and suicidal uh, means to do that. So that's what kind of like what, what's happening on the African continent. I look at Europe, you know, I lived in Europe, you know, I kind of try to forget that part of my life, but you know, like it's a really <laughs> tragic uh, time. And I look at what I know, I look at people that I know and how they continue to live and the, uh, the conditions under which they live the kind of like acute racism, but a racism that's also disguised, uh, disavowed, etc. And then obviously, I remember 
uh, it's kind of like the other encounter with blackness or my blackness uh, that I had uh, um, observed being in Canada. And, you know, the same frames of victimization, you know, are present in Canada and in Canada in ways that are deplorable as well. And then obviously I was in the United States and then, you know, we can begin to count everything of my crown, et cetera. So in, so I just couldn't understand, or rather I just found sat uh, specifically because I was at the time I was kind of like forced to work on Satan Fano and I was and res, I was resisting it, and I just found it just incapable of giving an account of that. It's not a complexity, but it's something that is almost um, incomprehensible. I was thinking about all the history, the hit, the histories that had made many dimensions of our lives possible, and the ways in which they had been betrayed by ourselves and by the promises of, of, you know, you know, the status quo, et cetera. So I just couldn't understand why we were dying and so easily and for absolutely no reasons, you know, and how claims for justice were also unheard. You know, they, they fell flat, you know, you could actually, with complete, complete impunity, kill a child, a black child, and be sure that it will go either unnoticed, but certainly not punished in any kind of way. So the kind of like neat story that I was getting from existentialism and phenomenology was just not doing it for me anymore. So that was the, that's, that's the story about the suspicion. So, so it seems as if, I mean, you've referenced this name in this context and also uh, a few minutes ago. So it seems like you were able to find a great resource in Fanon, Contra Existentialism, Contra uh, Sartre. So, so I, I, want us, I want us to talk about him a little bit more to kind of illuminate what is it about his work <laughs> um, that allow you to see what you couldn't find or what couldn't make sense in, in the other work. And, and, and with that, I think in some ways what I want to do is to kind of get behind because it seemed like your reading of him kind of differs, yeah. th- we, we might say, from, from, from what other scholars may say or what popular mm-hmm. understanding is. And so um, I want you to help me yeah. understand Fanon just a little bit by making, by making uh, your, your reading of him a little bit more clear. So yeah. let, me, let, me, let me begin with, with this question. So um, one of the things that you point out is that philosophers have a tendency to portray Fanon's work as, and this is your word, quote, a romance of emancipation. And you say they do this while losing sight of its most prophetic dimensions. So, so I wonder if you can, you know, briefly kind of explain to us how have they done this? And, and, and then I also wonder, what do you take to be Fanon's prophetic dimension? Uh-huh. Um, again, your questions are so difficult and <laughs> they, require, <laughs> they require a lot of help. But you just, you, you <laughs> love complexity. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. You know, um, this, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who's said this before, you know, folks like uh, Jared Sexton has said it before, and I completely agree with them, you know, this question of, I mean, one of the things that we, that I'd say the previous Fanonian establishment, which is not a previous one, is still very much the Fanonian establishment, but like the Fanon studies establishment, not the Fanonian, but like maybe 
the establishment in fennel studies, you know, has made incredible use of existentialism phenomenology as a tool to, you know, I mean, as kind of like the tradition in which fennel as a philosopher could be easily positioned into, right? So, I mean, and you can see why it makes sense. I mean, if you read, here's the thing. If you read Fanon in the ways that philosophers do, which means really badly, which means, <laughs> which means, you know, you know. Hold, hold back. Don't, don't hold back at uh, all. <laughs> no, I mean, you knew that wasn't going to put my punch. But like, right, right, right. you know, which is, it, it means like in a really truncated manner. That is to say, uh, you know, not only using Fanon as a text uh, that can be mined to, you know, kind of let, extract what one wants to say about an X condition of, oppre- of oppression, but also they have, there are really, truly bad historical, uh, they're, they're really bad historians in the sense that they read Fanon or parts of Fanon's work, you know, uh, in a very kind of like instrumental way. Like if you read, for instance, if you read Black Skin, White Mask, if you read the, if you read the fifth chapter of Black Skin, White Mask in isolation, or if you read, let's say, the other one uh, on on violence, like for instance, like like Arendt, who's you know notoriously known to have had a lot to say about Fanon, but we know that she only read that first chapter, you know, and she never read the the work. You know, if you read that chapter, you can actually just kind of like believe that Fanon is this kind of like, you know. This blind, how, do, how would I call that? Like this blind advocate of violence, but also like, uh, this, I would say perhaps the better way to say, to say this is just to think of that Fanon's would be kind of like this blind militant for decolonization by any means necessary. And one of them obviously being on violence. But it's kind of like the militant stand that is often bestowed on Fanon is always at the expense of the other things, the many things that Fanon rethink about himself, the kind of the reflexive move that permeates all his work. In the sense that, you know, you could, if you read uh, uh, the, that first chapter in isolation, you could say, well, you know, violence is the answer, is the mean through which one can accomplish the revolution. So you see like this kind of like programmatic uh, notion of instrumental violence, right? So, you know, you, it's by, by uh, engaging in a violent struggle against the colonized that you can actually defin- definitively ensure, you know, the, uh, the future of, you know, the kind of like, the promises of a decolonial future. So, so again, you know, uh, the emancipation is one that it's uh, uh, um, kind of like acquired or realized to a very kind of like uh, a precise program that involves violence. And, you know, and what the emancipation actually accomplishes is the restitution of land and property for the oppressed, you know, and also the restitution of the self to itself. 
right? So, you know, it's an emancipation, uh, redemption, uh, restitution, etc. But you don't need to go even further into Wretched of the Earth to realize that Fanon very quickly is not only aware of the uh, uh, um, the I, I'm trying to find uh, the idiom here. Uh, the ways in which violence is a a double-edged sword is that, is that how you say it in English, right? A double-edged sword. I know. this is what you get for speaking many languages. Uh, see, this this is all your fault. <laughs> you know, the thing is, like when I when I forget. Uh, something in one language, I forget it in all the languages. Uh, it's unbelievable. But I wonder if it happens to everybody. But like, you know, it's a kind of like a double-edged uh, sword. And it's kind of, it's both uh, a remedy and poison in a sense that it's it may be capable of, you know, accomplishing, you know, the, uh, uh, the kind of like anti, uh, kind of like, or at least beginning the movement of, anti, uh, of decolonization. But the outcome of that violence may be as detrimental as colonial violence itself, right? And Fanon is ex- ex- acutely aware of that. That's why he ends, for instance, Wretched of the Earth with that very often unread chapter or neglected chapter on uh, the kind of like the psychic repercussions of colonial war. Uh, so the kind of mental illness, illnesses that are an outcome of colonialism, right? And, you know, and very early he, you know, he goes into this kind of like really indicting discourse against, you know, anti-colonial politicians, etc. And what the and what I call the, the the prophetic dimension of Fanon is that I my reading for me is it, or at least the way that I approach the text and what I've I've been able to see or discern, sorry, would be that I see that prophetic voice really being Fanon's ability to predict, to predict, you know, the tragic outcome of the post-colony. He never was, I don't think he's ever been comfortable in saying what the, the moment after the revolution would look like. Because for him, I think in many ways, you know, the revolution was never really something that, that could be timed, programmed in ways that you you would think it can if you have this kind of really pious notion uh, of a militant manifesto. You know, so I, I, I don't I don't think, you know, I don't think Fanon in, in many ways, Fanon was not as he never really held these kind of like facile, easy notions of liberation, of a post-colonial moment, of the revolution, etc. These were always haunted by the possibility of failures. And I think that one of the things that makes Fanon so, uh, how would I call it, uh, you know, uh, so important, even for, for this generation, you know, because it, it, I don't think that we return to Fanon because we want to read Fanon. You know, I think that Fanon resonates our ethical, political sensibilities at this precise moment for good reasons. It's because we actually continue to find Fanon 
quite relevant for our times. So, 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 so you talk about relevance. So, so I'm glad you mentioned this, right? Because you just quoted yourself. So I want to bring those quotes back into being. And then I kind of want to question kind of the relevancy or at least not, not question the relevancy, but try to get at what exactly is the relevancy. So in your work, you talk about how phenomenism is neither a philosophy of the proper nor simply a pious therapeutic telos. Okay. All right. And then you say that phenomenism is not a from slavery to freedom narrative or not a, me- a militant manifesto at all, right? So if that's the case, then one might say, how is it that <laughs> the current generation is still finding relevance if it's in, in his work, if it's neither of those things? So what exactly are they seeing? What exactly are they finding? What is, what is the relevancy? What is the thing about Fanon that, that people, particularly oppressed people that's trying to make sense of oppression, um, find his work that's so important if it's not philosophy proper or therapeutic telos, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you know, I mean, in the most immediate, most immediate part of the answer, really, I would give you is that, you know, he's still relevant because what he's describing is our lives today. That's why he's relevant, right? Because the conditions that he is describing ring the bell of our everyday lives. So we find his, the, the, not only the descriptive dimension of his work, but perhaps his mode of reading, the conditions of, of oppression are somewhat quite uh, similar, or at least they're appealing because they're describing something that we can recognize. And that's why he's relevant. But that doesn't mean that we have to read them in the ways that our uh, the, the preceding generation of Fennel scholars were reading him. Because I think that we may, I mean, really uh, succinctly, let me just say that we are faced with the same kind of anti-Black conditions, but they transform themselves. They revamp themselves. They come back and under new Guises, you know, they uh, they need to transform themselves in order to continue to function, right? So that means that we have one of the things, the task of contemporary readers of Fano is to is to be able to translate what we have, what we discern as relevant in Fano's uh, in Fano's work into the language of our time, and this is something that Ashun Bembe has said before, but I think it should be maintained. But, you know, each generation of Fanon readers would have a new task of the translation task or a new task of translation would be really the real task. You know, if Fanon continued to be relevant for us, you know, and, you know, the reason why he continues to be relevant for us is actually a bit tragic. You know, so so but really, I think the task of reading him today means that we have to discern you know, which is also an impossible task, by the way, because the task of translation is always, in some way, a failed task from the very beginning. But, you know, there's always a way in which you can fail better, you know. And I think that the, the, the aim here is precisely to be able to at least find the ways in which, or the dimension in Fano and feminism that somewhat are helpful in not helpful in the kind of like, uh, again, um, uh, I, I, I can't remember what, uh, what sentence you, you quoted, 
but uh, it was something about uh, not a, a freedom to from slavery to freedom uh, narrative, uh, not a militant manifesto, uh, not a militant manifesto, and in that sense, right? Because I think that there is a way in which you know activism is a different kind of beast today, and what we're we're facing is a completely different. Or just the, the the work that needs to be done is a bit different, but I think that the task here is to know how to read Fanon for us today, and that's a very difficult one, you know. But it also prevents us from like kind of like falling into these ways in which we can reify, you know, an author's work and somewhat kind of suck out uh, uh, the certain kind of dimension of. Uh, a, a vitality that the text may have, a vitality that exceed people's interpretation and people's reading, you know. But I think that there's a way in which we, or our pre- previous generation, uh, were really adamant in finding and stating the truth of fanonism. I don't think we are interested in that. I don't think that's how we're approaching the texts, right? I think that people, if people actually took Fanon's notion of invention seriously, you know, if they actually took the complexity of that idea seriously, they'll understand that Fanon had any, no commitment to a very precise picture of what uh, the revolution would look like and what the revolution would entail. Precisely because in Fanon, you always find these moments of hesitation, this moment of refusal to abide, abide to the tropes of Europe, European philosophy and European normative, uh, normative language, etc. So in a way, he never really says what it is. And as far as he's concerned, it could be really bad. You know, it, uh, it's, you know, it, it never really uh, promises either, you know, uh, a clear redemption or perhaps even a tragic erasure of of everything that we know as we know it. But like, you know, what I'm saying is that, you know, it could be uh, that moment of revolution is never really clearly and definitively narrated in Fanon's work. So in that sense, the reason why we keep going back to Fanon is precisely because, you know, speaking about Black freedom, it's still a contested speech, right? It's still mad speech to some extent. And so, so that's kind of like clear, uh, very teleological notion of the rising of the Black Phoenix, if you'd like, <laughs> from, <laughs> from the bottom of domination uh, to, you know, assertive and self-possessed agent. It's still a very uh, difficult history to trace. And so, yeah, so I see that what one of the, 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 the beauty of, uh, of, of Fanon's work is precisely is that it actually makes, make, makes that impossibility quite legible for us, at least uh, who are working uh, with these texts from that perspective. Right? So, yes, I guess I answered your question somehow. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and that therapeutic telos, you know, we could we could. We can perhaps talk about it later because it has to do with Fanon's relation to psychoanalysis, et cetera. So what do you think is, if you think there is one, the connection between Fanon and what we call today Afro-pessimism? 
I mean, the, the connections are clear to me, really. Uh, <laughs> make them make them clear to us. <laughs> I mean, uh, they're clear, but also they're not clear in the sense that you know, someone like Frank Wilderson's uh, reading of Fennel uh, tries to pull out. I think, in a certain sense, it's kind of like pessimistic dimension of Fennel's work. In sense, for instance, you know, things that I was talking to earlier, you know, the ways in which Fennel, uh, for instance, could predict the, uh, the tragic outcome of the post-colony. The ways in which uh, Fennel was able to read Blackness as uh, these, uh, this condition of being that uh, is so radically vulnerable to not only philosophy, but to, uh, to everything, right? That, uh, you know, what we had, you know, what we have is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a notion of alterity that oftentimes is not only so violently victimized and vulnerable, but also whose vulnerability is part of the foundation of, a, 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 of uh, not only the world, but also, you know, uh, the kind of like the structure, the, the general structure of, of existence and experience in general. Uh, I think, you know, uh, early pages of Ponoir Masque Blanc, you know, um, uh, when, for instance, you know, final position or, or let's go, actually, let's even go to the, the chapter that philosophy loves so much. You know, when Fanon says, for instance, that the, the black has no ontological resistance in the eyes of the white man, that ontology could never really give uh, a, a clear explanation of blackness or the black man, right? So, or the ontology will always leave the black man on the wayside. That accent. So, and you know, some of his preferred poems uh, that he gets out of the work of Emile Césaire, in where in which Emile Césaire talks about the ways in which the the vulnerability and the violence against black folks is actually necessary for the working, the inner working, and and the general workings of this world, right? The ways in which a certain kind of like the ways in which slavery was was indispensable, for instance, and when I mean slavery, I mean racial slavery, uh, was indispensable for the making of you know of the world as we know it today, and the ways in which black death continued to subtend you know uh, a certain kind of like you know our conventional notion of, of the normative, right? So I, I think that these connections are clear. Uh, whether uh, they are, um, uh, uh, how would I say, I would say this, you know, they, they obviously do not make up the entire uh, of the entire work of Fanon, but there is, a way, there is a way in which that position, that Fanonian position is there and is operating throughout his work. And I don't, I, 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 it's hard for me not to deny, to deny these connections, right? Uh, now, you know, uh, uh, you can then, you can be, um, an Afro-pessimist or you can be, you know, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Frankly, I can't tell you what that means precisely because, you know, I like, 
I like uh, Jared Sexton, a uh, little short essay in this specialist rhizome. The title is that is, is uh, Afro-pessimism the unclear word? It is an unclear word to, to some extent. And it doesn't really. I mean, there's a way in which the proponent themselves, the self-identified Afro-pessimists, also refuse to call it a school of thought, for instance. Perhaps it's a constellation of thinkers who share a method of reading, uh, who, sh- who share different kind of political sensibilities, et cetera. But um, I think that the ways in which we see Blackness be really at the foundation or as, uh, the ways in which we see Blackness be necessary for the world, you know, it's something that we can easily identify in the work of Fanon. And whether you want to agree with it, so that then, I mean, that is your task as a reader, Fanon. But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I, don't think these, I don't think these connections are contestable, really. your favorite scholar oh god just one i can't say one <laughs> just just one i'm sorry okay your favorite two who's your favorite two i, know, I have to say, it has to be three <laughs> okay <laughs> who, 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 are the, who are these three people yes who, who are they uh, in no specific no, no specific no no order yeah, yes. in no specific older order jacques derrida uh david marriott and hortense pillars and is there anything that they share in common? I like the kind of agonistic style, but not necessarily in the political sense of the term, you know, but like the combative, the sense that they're, they're, they're just, they're not uh, easily swayed by neat stories. You know, they're not easily swayed by, by uh, pious and, and very well-organized uh, train of thought. I think that the ways in which they're able to pull out the complexity, the complexity of, of text, the complexity of questions, it's quite remarkable. And in doing that, they're also not afraid uh, to, at times, uh, not indict themselves, but, uh, but at least commit themselves to very unpopular views, which sometimes means that they may be implicated, perhaps complicit uh, to things that they appear to be criticizing, but they're also not afraid of that risk, you know, because this question of of complicity, which is, you know, the complicity with the frame, let's say with frameworks that one is criticizing, is really part of the work of critical thought, you know. As a kind of, that's the risk that a critical theorist always takes. And I think that they're never afraid of that. And I think that I, I all three of them, have a way to really, to refuse the parameters established by a given school or, or a given mode of reading, etc. I mean, there's a way in which you know, I think one of the things that really uh, connects all three of them is this question of uh, aporia, you know, like these dead end questions that have, you know, they have almost insurmountable amount of complexity uh, that appear sometimes impossible to respond. You know, they're kind of like driven by the impossible, 
in that way, you know, and that kind of likes the commitment to give an, a, an account of the impossible, that which cannot be accounted for, and perhaps will never be able to, to be accounted for, you know, which gives, again, the notion of giving an account or even narrate, because I, I I'm not going to say narrate, David would kill me, but, you know, like, I just like just, uh, philosophize, perhaps, reading perhaps would be the right word you know they it's never really uh you know just just like uh, the the courageous act that they embody in their reading is what i find extremely attractive because you know being driven by an impossible task is something that many of us are afraid to do and undertake i never they, they never shy away from that and i i think that's what i find beautiful in their work so here's a question that's completely different from yeah. that one. What has been what has been one of your guilty pleasures during quarantine? Oh my God, I I, I don't have any. Oh, <laughs> I'm just like petrified for most of the time and so afraid to. Oh, um, um, man, that one I can't say publicly. <laughs> oh my God! What do you, if you if if you if you had the sanity to engage in a guilty pleasure? <laughs> No, I actually do have one, but I only have it <laughs> okay. only it's only on TV once a week and I watch it. Ah, and I, I want to know would be, what is it? I would be I, I mean, I'm 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 but you know what? Actually that's come on, you, 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 you the people that you admire is courageous. So so be courageous. What what, was, what well, is this, what is the name of the show? This this is really horrible show. I mean it's absolutely horrible in the most tragic sense of the term. But again, it's for me it's actually it's a bit of a I think it's quite connected to the work that I do. Um, yes, go ahead and fix it up. What is the show? <laughs> uh, uh, do you know about 90 Days Fiance? I've heard of it on Twitter. Oh my God. It's absolutely <laughs> horrific. But I'm telling you, the relationship between the global north and the global south is so played out. Okay, I did like, see an episode of... <laughs> I, you know, I did see an episode. I did. No, 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 no. I didn't see a full episode. I saw something online. Maybe you posted it about a young lady who ended up um, marrying a brother from a from an African country. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there are two of them now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I don't know if it was you who posted it. I think that's that was my first introduction to it. But you, you, you um, it can be. Why is it so pleasurable? Why is it so pleasurable for you? I mean, it's very kind of like you know, uh, masochistic sense. Because, ah. <laughs> you know, it's really, I mean, the tragedy of the, the global South and the, the complex uh, of, of superiority of the global North, North is literally played out. Really? Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. You know, the ways in which love becomes a tool to dominate the other, you know, in which citizenship becomes, for instance, a way to um, to kind of like dictate, to have kind of like a a, 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 a grasp or a robust, yeah, a grasp on your desires, etc. It's like the weirdest thing. Like for instance, you would see things like you know someone that you were supposedly were in love with for like I don't know four years without seeing them. You see them for the first time. On your first on your first fight, you're like, oh no, you're not. I'm going to deport you. I am going to write you. Uh, you know, see, like I these see. kinds of things. Yeah, you're yeah. like, oh my god, you literally was like with this person for 
an X amount, a number of years, or you were speaking with him or her or them, and you had, you know, you had never seen them in person. And all of a sudden on the first fight, you're like already saying, you know, I'm going to call immigration on you, you know, uh, or, you know, I mean, it's just like the craziest thing ever, but it's so mad that I don't even know if it's entertaining. It's just completely me being, you know, masochistic in hard times. <laughs> just, I'm looking at you oh, like wow. I'm both laughing, but I'm, my heart is also <laughs> like, I'm like, wow, this is where we live. This is the world. This is the world we live in, you know. So I, you know, I can't believe I admitted this publicly, but yeah, I, I watch it on whatever. It, it's not just you. A lot of a lot of intellectuals that I know on Twitter is also tweeting about the same thing. So it's it's, it's not it's not on you. Excel, thank you so much for taking the time out. It was great doing this. To you rough time to chat with me thank you so I much i had lots of uh, lots of, uh, of fun actually doing this i didn't think i would but likewise <laughs> thank you i can always count on you to be honest thank you thank you thank you so much that this conversation exceeded your expectations <laughs> i appreciate it going and i learned so much thank you so much for sharing For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.